Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. My guest today is Tim Jackson. Tim is currently artistic director for both the Monterey Jazz Festival and the Coamba Jazz Center located in Santa Cruz, California. Tim acted as the general manager of the festival beginning in 1992 when he took over the duties of booking the legendary event from its retiring founder, Jimmy Lyons. Since then, the Monterey Jazz Festival has consistently been named one of the top three jazz festivals in the world by readers of Jazz Time magazine, winning the top spot in 2006, 2007, and 2008. Tim co-founded the Coamba Jazz Center in 1975 and has been presenting live music there ever since. In fact, this year, 2015, marks their 40th anniversary season. Recent projects under Tim's leadership include the restoration and digitization of the festival's extensive 55-year audio archive collection housed at Stanford University, and the establishment of Monterey Jazz Festival Records in partnership with Concord Records. The label won a Grammy Award in 2009 for their release live at the 2007 Monterey Jazz Festival by the Monterey Jazz Festival 50th All-Stars. A performing musician since his teens, Jackson got his start in music at Half Moon Bay's Rock Dancing and Dynamite Society. Tim, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Happy to do it. <laughs> well, I think um, your unique background and professional experience couldn't make for a better discussion, so let's dive in. You've launched some fairly innovative marketing strategies for the festival, including three national festival tours and a major partnership with Concord Records. Clearly, this has been a success. The label won the 2009 Grammy Awards. But from a marketing standpoint, um, these are really sort of two brilliant ways, I think, to drive awareness for the festival. Can you talk a little bit more about how each of these endeavors came about? Because I think anyone listening who's involved in festival promotion and marketing would really benefit from hearing about this. Sure. Um, it really started, oh, really in the mid-2000s when we were um, thinking about our the festival's 50th anniversary, which was in 2008. Um, a few years before that, I, I was trying to plan for the event and thinking, you know, what can we do to kind of leverage the festival and its legacy, its reputation, uh, to do more than just present a really great 50th jazz festival. And I started just sort of mentally uh, compiling the, the assets of the organization, um, particularly its archives, which uh, are housed uh, at Stanford University. Um, most most of the uh, arena stage, Jimmy Lyons stage, main stage performances at the festival uh, have been recorded uh, archivally over the years, and there's you know several thousand hours worth of recordings up there going back to 1958. Uh, at that point, it was still a little bit early in the digital revolution, um, uh, but we realized that uh, those old um, acetate tapes um, or uh, you know the, the the oxide on the tapes was starting to wear off, and that we really were going to need to do some serious restoration, or we would lose the archive. So, 
along with our uh, development director at the time, and in partnership with Stanford, we we raised some significant dollars to digitize the entire archive. So with Stanford's help and some help from um, Fantasy Studios uh, in Berkeley, over about a two-year period, we were able to uh, digitize the entire archive and also catalog it at the same time. Uh, and put it into a database so it was easy to, to to navigate and find your way around. So once that was accomplished, um, at that point we thought, well, how could we, you know, make some of this music available uh, uh, to the public? Because there were some incredible performances there by Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and Art Blakey and Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. Um, so we went to uh, our friends at, at Concord Music Group, uh, Glenn Barrows, Larry Blake, uh, Nick Phillips, and worked a partnership with them where uh, over a period of years we released not only historical material but also recorded and released new material like the um, uh, Dave Holland, Gonzalo Rubalcaba, Eric Harland, um, Chris Potter uh, project that we recorded, I think, in 2008 or 2009, um, and so that was uh, so that was a really great project. Um, we're, we're actually winding that down now um, and uh, amicably um, you know, moving, uh, you know, moving away from from that relationship just by mutual uh, mutual agreement that we've we've kind of run our course there. Um, but it was a really, uh, you know, it was a, it was a successful venture, and it was a great way for us to, in in creative ways, get the you know our name out there and uh, get some great music to the public. Uh, the touring idea really was it was the same thing. It was like, well, you know, we have this great festival every year. What if we kind of took the spirit of that fest of, of the music that's created with artists who are tied in with the festival and select music that's not only reflective of those artists' careers but also legacy of the festival and um, and move forward with you know with a national tour and try and do it um, uh, not every year but about every three years. Um, the marketplace really won't support a tour every year, but we we're now planning our fourth tour for next year for uh winter of 2016 uh and so we've uh, these tours generally um we introduce the group at the festival uh, in September they rehearse we get all the collateral materials all the photographs um video um Get all our pr promotional materials together there, while plus the music, um, and debut the group and uh, record it there. Um, the first year we recorded uh, with the group with uh, Terrence Blanchard and James Moody, um, and that record won a Grammy for uh, for Terrence. Uh, so we record every year. We don't necessarily release it, but but we we have the music available and we use that for promotional. Uh, purposes uh and then the following uh, winter we uh go out on a tour it generally nationally sometimes uh we'll go into Canada 
Um, and we'll do anywhere from 35 to 55 dates, depending on the year and, and the interest uh, in the project, and tour usually in two concentrated uh, time periods. So that's also been a great way to take the spirit of the Monterey Jazz Festival out to uh, the public, um, both in major markets and in secondary and tertiary, tertiary markets. So um, it's a great way to get our um, kind of the MJF vibe out there and also get some great musicians together and play some incredible music. So, yeah, those those projects kind of flowed naturally from our uh, 50th anniversary and will probably continue on, you know, up uh, into our 60, uh, 60th, which will happen, what, in uh, three years from now. Yeah, that's that's great. It, I, I kind of think of what you're describing as you guys have sort of reversed the traditional, I'm an artist, I'm going to go on tour, I'm going to uh, you know, market the tour if it's in support of a release, I'm going to sell my product on the shows. But you guys have sort of reversed that concept, and it's almost as if the Monterey Jazz Festival itself has become the artist in a sense because these other endeavors are on the road for its, on its behalf, generating the awareness and, and, and selling the product. And, you know, I know of a few other festivals, I think, that are doing that or have done that, but I don't know of any, certainly to the um, extent and success that you guys have done it. So that's why I wanted to kind of start with that because I think it's such a, it really to me seems like an innovative way to um, market the festival in general. Well, we've we followed the metrics on it, and uh, you know, looked at the kind of impact we're having, and um, we, you know, with our marketing folks, and they, you know, it's just you know, millions of impressions that we get from either people that are going to the performances, or at least um, you know, aware of of the activities that we're doing in their particular communities, and uh, you know, it does it does make for a lot of new friends, and hopefully. We'll get some people to uh, also visit us at the jazz festival each year. Right. Yeah. So you kind of just led into my next question. Have, have you noticed over the past several years that you've been doing this somewhat of an increase in the attendance, maybe specifically because of these two um, sort of endeavors? Um. You know, I don't know uh, about that. I mean, we've. Uh, you know, we're. You know, we're a victim of of not a victim, but you know, we're a product of the larger, you know, a- economy in general. Certainly, um, in the mid 2000s, uh, when the economy was good and we were in and around our 50th anniversary, you know, we had a big spike in our attendance. Um, you know, the attendance has leveled off somewhat uh, over the last few years. This year, selling really well. We do sell. Uh, you know, usually about 90 – for a number of years, we had complete sellouts, you know, every year. Now we're averaging usually usually around 90%, any, anywhere from about 88 to 94%, uh, you know, which is still really good. Um, and are, are we getting people coming from the uh, – you know, that see the tour or listen to our records? Probably some, you know, anecdotally we do hear that, but I, I don't really have any, you know, empirical evidence uh, of that. But the festival itself has always drawn people from outside the area. It really does have an, an international reach, and only about 18 to 20 percent of our um, attendance comes actually from people in Monterey County. So it is a festival that people come from all over the world to experience. 
Absolutely, yeah. And it seems like, you know, those two these two things we're talking about, I mean, that's really just the tip of the iceberg because for example, if somebody were to go on go online, <clears throat> excuse me, to the website right now, they'd see a whole bunch of different ways to think about uh artists that are going to be performing there that they that might help frame their decision and specifically I noticed Sunday is considered family day. And if you're looking maybe at the arena artist section, you might see different acts presented um, as music without borders or vision for the future. How did you come up with these themes and have they been somewhat consistent each year? How does that work? Relatively consistent. You know, for a number of years, we, we had the, um, the luxury of, Basically, if you wanted to come to the Monterey Jazz Festival, uh, particularly in the arena, you had to buy a ticket for all three days, all five shows, and we were able to, you know, to sell out on that basis. I think as we move, um, again, we're we're a product of of our environment, and I think as we move to more and more, I, I, I kind of call it a, more of an a la carte society. Um, uh, people are moving faster. Um, imagery is moving all the time. People don't want to make uh, big commitments, so you know we had to kind of change the way we were selling our tickets um, and kind of move with the times and create uh, lots of different ways for people to experience the festival. The old way of just saying, well, you can either you know buy a full weekend arena package or nothing. Um, we we're realizing it wasn't going to work anymore because people. They wanted they wanted to see who they wanted to see and not be tied into uh, a complete weekend package. So several years ago, we've opened things up to um, uh, single day arena say, uh, ticket sales, single day ground sales. Um, so there is, as you mentioned, there's a myriad of ways to to enjoy the festival, and we've tried to create make it as easy as possible for people to um, to enjoy the festival. On whatever level works for them, if they have a full weekend, great. If they don't, if they only have one day, we're going to find a way to um, make sure that they can experience the festival in the way that they want to. Uh, in the way that they want to do that, uh, from a programming standpoint, um, again, when you're selling uh, a weekend package. Uh, it becomes you know less important that each show has to stand on its own from a marketing standpoint um because people are buying the entire package uh, you know as we move into single day then you have to really make sure that each of your shows um can stand on its own two feet from from a uh, audience development interest and from a sales standpoint uh, we've always had some kind of loose themes to the festival that you know predated my um tenure with with the organization uh you know Saturday afternoon has always been a little more uh R&B blues um um you know Americana type of uh programming for many years it was really kind of a people always called it the blues afternoon i i've tried to stretch those boundaries quite a bit to you know, include basically what I kind of call American roots music, some blues, some R&B, some Americana, some, you know, New Orleans funk, all of that kind of fits on under that uh, Saturday afternoon umbrella. Uh, Sunday afternoon, we've always had a focus on our education programs. We have our 
Next Generation Jazz Festival perform with our artists and residents. So this year, the Next Generation Jazz um, Orchestra, I mean, and that's our national high school all-star big band made up of the best uh, high school players in the country that auditioned to join the band and uh, tour uh, during the summer with us and then uh, perform at the festival with our artists and residents who this year uh, they'll be performing with Wynton Marsalis. So um, that traditionally has been, and then on the grounds we also present a lot of the uh, uh, top groups from our Next Generation Jazz Festival, which is our sister festival that we do every spring in Monterey that is our student festival for middle school, high school, and college ensembles from vocal ensembles, combos, and big bands. Uh, so a lot of those top groups perform on Sunday. So that kind of makes for uh, a natural tie-in with families and outreach and education and so we you know we really put a focus on that on uh, on Sunday afternoon. So there's kind of some natural themes that uh, emerge every year and for people who are regulars at the festival there's kind of a kind of an an arc to the weekend uh depending on you know what day it is and what and what show it is. Right. Yeah, and I would think that those are probably two of the most challenging aspects of running a festival and, and specifically programming. And then what you started to talk a little bit about, this idea that you're actually you're trying to create a unique experience for for your patrons. Um it's amazing. I mean I recently read that it's estimated there's between eight hundred and fifty to upwards of a thousand annual summer festivals in the United States alone now. Um so all the things that you're talking about are, are great because I don't see that many doing that. And when I look at Monterey, you touched on this a little bit, but there's some key components there that really make for a unique experience. And I and I would think in particular, each year the artist in residence, the showcase artist, and then the commissioning artist program all create and add to this experience that patrons can expect. You know, this year uh, it looks like the artist in residence is going to feature Jazz at Lincoln Center with Wynton Marsalis. The, the showcase artist is Chick Corea. And the commission artist um, is Ambrose Akinurse. How did you develop each of these programs, and, and how do you think about them each year? Well, I do think, you know, when the festival was founded in 1958, there were really, in this country, there were just really two major jazz festivals. There was Newport on the East Coast and Monterey on the West Coast. So as as you correctly uh, point out, um, there's festivals on every street corner in the country every year now. I mean, the the the, the landscape is just uh, chock full of of events and ways uh, for uh, people to you know spend their discretionary dollars. And it gets harder and harder to get your your message across because there's just so many, so much competition. I mean, just in the Bay Area alone with. Um, all the different jazz organizations and festivals and activities um you know there's, there there's it's it's great for the music i'm i'm absolutely supportive of it um uh, because i think the bay area now is really one of the hot spots for jazz uh, in the country and 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 in the world um but it does make for a crowded marketplace for um for all of our activities and for monterey um it, you know it it's it's a challenge in the sense that Monterey, like Newport, is is 
fairly isolated geographically. Um, uh, we do have an airport there, so uh, people can fly in, but it, it's a little more expensive to fly in than it would be, say, to San Francisco or San Jose. You know, we're a good two, two and a half hours from uh, from San Francisco, um, and you know, you're in a in kind of a resort, uh, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, the the type of um area that you know people really f flock to a real touristy type area so uh, you know hotels can be expensive so you know it it's an expensive weekend to come to the festival not really for the ticket prices but for the distance you have to travel your transportation your hotel that sort of thing so it it makes i think really incumbent uh for us to make sure that our programming is is really unique and different um, so I'm very mindful of that, of not just trying to present a a standard parade of great jazz artists with their groups. I, I, I try and have some unique programming every year that's unique to the festival that you just won't hear uh, anywhere else. So the commission program, the artists in residence, uh, the showcase artists, all kind of the commissioning program really I just revived back in 1994 and when I in my early days with the festival, I just kind of revived a tradition that had started back in the early '60s, um, when Jimmy Lyons was commissioning John Lewis and J.J. Johnson and Gunther Schuller and all sorts of different folks to uh, to write new music. I just kind of reinstituted that program, and every year since 1994, we've kept that as a festival tradition of commissioning an artist to write and premiere a new work. And that, so that that's part of that whole kind of recipe of creating something new, something new and different. Um, similarly, with the artists in residence or the showcase artists. Uh, a lot of times I just look back from, you know, our early programs from the late 50s to, to mid-60s, which is really a kind of a cultural hotspot at the festival, and just revive some ideas and, and kind of fine-tune them for, um, you know, for modern times, uh, particularly with our education programs, which we have a huge – I mean, that's one of the things we're most proud of. We're probably, for a presenting organization um, – place a higher emphasis on jazz education and outreach programs than uh than any organization uh jazz organization in the country and we've we've done that for decades we're not a we're not a newcomer to uh to the jazz education scene we really have always been on the on the forefront of that so the artist in residence program is really a great way to involve an artist year round in the Monterey community because we bring them the artist in residence out for our next generation jazz festival for our summer jazz camp for the um festival itself so it's a great way for these artists to involve themselves in the Monterey County community and with our young students that we're involved with uh year round throughout Monterey County yeah, yeah, and you just said something that I want to kind of highlight, the idea of thinking about it year-round. That's that's huge. I mean, how, you know, we just, I just, you know, again, it's estimated that there's upwards of a 1,000 festivals, but how many of them actually take the time to think through long-term all these different, you know, programs within the festival that, that you're discussing? I don't, I don't think many do. I think 
it's it's more you know we're going to book our headlining acts and then we're going to announce and sort of see what happens certainly some have been very successful but others the, the lifespan of the festival you you can kind of look and see it's anywhere from you know two festivals maybe four or five and then they sort of run out you guys are clearly on a different level with everything so i, I really appreciate you talking about these things because again it's almost you know it's a great example of um what other festivals should be doing in my opinion um well you know, I- I, yeah, I think it's it's really key that uh, whether you're a festival or uh, uh, a year-round presenting organization like Kowumba Jazz Center is, um, that basically what your programming in your organization is reflective of your community. And so for Monterey Jazz Festival, just to uh, you know fire up three days of the year and, and present great jazz, um, I mean, that's that in itself is a, is a wonderful thing and and um would be fine in and of itself but I think for our organization you know we really look to have a much more comprehensive and extensive um relationship with our community so consequently we have uh you know uh two full-time people in our education uh in our education department and we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year on those programs and it's it's a very visible active part of of our organization you know our next generation jazz festival draws you know thousands of of young students and hundreds of schools from from around the country so um you know we're, we are proud of that fact and it's something that we're um you know very dedicated and uh, in, in continuing, and it's not without its challenges, um, particularly over the last few years. Um, but uh, you know, we feel really confident uh, in in our vision, and that um, uh, you know, as it, when you've been around for almost sixty years, um, you know, you've learned how to weather the storms and the uh, you know the curveballs that um, can befall any uh, community not-for-profit organization. Right, absolutely. Um, well, let's sort of transition here for just a second then and, and talk more specifically about the Kuomba Jazz Center. Prior to us uh, you know, doing this interview and everything, I was thinking about this, and it really hit me that, you know, if you think about most individuals and organizations in the music industry, would I'd be willing to bet they'd be happy with their success if their festival uh, or venue um, simply has a good, a good reputation and is selling tickets. But not only is that the case with the Monterey Jazz Festival, for the past 40 years, um, Tim, you found a way to also successfully promote and market a 200-seat concert venue five to six nights per week. How, how do you kind of manage both of these worlds? And, and then also I'd love to hear you talk about your process for booking and promoting the venue specifically. Well, you have to have a good team teamwork and a good organization uh for sure, which I'm very lucky to have in both organizations. Both organizations have uh you know, are on solid fiscal footing, um, which is something that we're, you know, very proud of and, and work very hard to make sure uh that we're you know, for the most part, not dealing, you know, from a crisis type mode or a crisis mentality, and having great staffs in both places, um, it really allows me the flexibility. Um, you know, I started at Kuomba. I'm one of the founders. Um, 
uh, back in 1975. We were just, you know, basically I was 20, 20, just turned 21. Um, and so we just st started as a completely grassroots organization with no uh, no professional experience at all. So we just learned uh, as we went. But we were smart enough to um, jump in very early in the under the the banner of, of nonprofits because you remember, well, for, particularly for Monterey to be founded as a nonprofit jazz organization in 1958, pretty unheard of. Um, I, I don't know of, I, I really don't, I'm, there's probably a, a comparable story out there and I'm not saying we're the only one that did it, but, um, I don't know who else did it. I mean, you know, Newport is now a nonprofit organization, but in those days it was very much a commercial, uh, for-profit, uh, company. Uh, the same thing in Coomba, even by the mid seventies, jazz was still, very predominantly presented in the you know in the commercial marketplace uh not really under the banner of nonprofit organizations but even in in 1975 we founded as a nonprofit organization so i think we were ahead of the curve uh in both organizations there and that that allowed us to uh you know really kind of establish uh, you know, a, a more diverse income source uh, than just worried about um, selling tickets at the door or selling food or beverages. Um, and under the nonprofit banner, you know, we were eligible for grants from public and private agencies and also to, uh, you know, actively fundraise in the community. So that really helped give us diverse um, diverse income sources to help us stay stay vital. You know, as right. far as Programming, you know, I was here for oh, 15 years at Coomba before um, uh, moving to Monterey, and it just the logistics worked out to where I was able to maintain relationships in both organizations. They're not um, tied together at all; they're completely separate boards. Um, uh, there, there's really no there uh, other than sharing me as as the artistic director there's really no um uh, connection between the two organizations although we're you know we're all friends you know most of my board members uh also uh, at Coomba also attend the Monterey Jazz Festival a lot of our uh, Monterey folks come up uh to see shows at Coomba so it's a uh you know, it, it, it's a great relationship, but we don't. There's no formalized relationship between the two organizations. Um, I've always said programming-wise, um, Coomba is great because we're presenting music week in and week out. Other than a couple of weeks around the holidays when we close to kind of do projects around the facility, uh, we're open and presenting music. So my ear is always to the pavement. I'm hearing new artists uh, all the time. And always have an ear out for what might work for Monterey. And at Monterey, um, uh, you know, I'm able to develop relationships with some of the, you know, the biggest names in the jazz world, whether it's, you know, Herbie Hancock or Pat Metheny or Wayne Shorter or George Benson or Diana Krall. And 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 so consequently, a lot of those artists will also come up and and play Santa Cruz. So it's really kind of been a symbiotic relationship to where I think my activities in each organization complements the other organization. Yeah. 
Well, again, congratulations. I mean, 40 years, that's no easy feat, and it's really exciting. Yeah, you know, it is. I, I you know, we, we tend to be a very uh, mission-driven uh, organization on both sides, whether it's Monterey or Coomba. So I don't often spend a lot of time, uh, you know, reflecting uh, on the past, but when you do hit a, a milestone like uh, 40 years, uh, you know, there's no question that you want to sit back every now and then and kind of think uh, back over the years and all the relationships that we've created and all the great music that's been here and, and all the wonderful people that have come, you know, in and out of the venue and the and the type of impact that we've been able to have uh, on our community here. It's pretty, uh, it, it is pretty powerful when you think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, I know that, um, you know, we don't have too much more time here, but I wonder if you might talk a little bit about um, relationships, as you were mentioning between both sort of entities, you're, you've developed a lot of relationships over the years. And, you know, in thinking specifically sort of about the artist, the agent, the manager relationship, as we've already discussed, the, the industry has changed considerably since you started back in 1975. What are some of the other changes you might have noticed um, in your interactions sort of with each party? Or maybe you haven't. Well, I, <laughs> you know, in some ways it's different. In some ways it's it's really the same. I mean, when we, you know, when I got into um, the, the business, you know, even working with Pete Douglas in the early 70s when I was just out of uh, high school up there at Bach Dancing and Dynamite Society, you know, it was still, it was, you know, a decade before the, you know, the whole Winton, you know, Young Lions movement. Um, and it was still very much, uh, you know, more more kind of on the commercial club sort of thing. You know, at that time in the Bay Area, uh, Keystone Corner, Todd Barkin's Keystone Corner was the main jazz venue. And it was the classic, you know, six night a week jazz club with Monday nights off, which is really why we started the tradition of Monday night concerts here at, at Coomba because uh, of our relationship with Keystone Corner. It's like, well, if the band's, you know, has Monday off and they're going to, you know, transition from San Francisco to L.A. or Seattle or, or tour Japan or something, they come down here and work on the Monday nights. So, you know, logistically, kind of, it, it kind of started there. And artistically, at that time, you know, it was the you know artists. You know, I think with McCoy Tyner really active then, Phil Woods, Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, we presented artists like Helen Humes, uh, Slam Stewart, uh, Teddy Wilson. Uh, you know, artists, Red Norvo, artists that went all the way back uh, to the 30s um, and worked, got to work with some of the, the agents at that time. I mean, one of the, you know, if you talk to some of the veteran uh, jazz artists, you know, one of the great agents back then was a guy named Jack Whittemore, who people, John Coltrane, Miles Davis in the 50s and 60s, going all the way back to Benny Goodman in the 30s. And so I still, you know, caught that era of working with Jack Whittemore, you know, kind of the old school booking agent, a great guy. And um, so, you know, I've seen that kind of evolution come and I've, I've seen where, you know, jazz is, is, is hot and then for a few years it's not. But um, 
if you're dedicated to it and consistent in in your vision you can uh you know you can weather the storm so I think in one sense the um you know the music uh has always been vital and vibrant we've see I've seen a couple of generations of of artists now come up through the ranks and sort of like a, on a sports team you know the artists just keep getting better and better and better and better particularly I see in our high school programs you know some of these students that come through now in high school are so polished and so incredible I just I can't believe how how good they are. <laughs> um, really good to hear. Yeah, and I think from from you know on on the business end, uh, I'm always happy to see um, young people get into the business side of jazz and, and people like yourself. Um, uh, you know, the, the the jazz world needs dedicated young people. You know, to jump in. Uh, bring their skill sets, uh, their interest and expertise in new technologies, and move things to the next generation. I mean that that that's really what it's all about now. I mean I, I have to say after 40 years, you know, you do start looking at legacy stuff a little bit more and realize, well, you know, I'm not going to be. I'm I don't feel like I'm I'm not an old guy, but um, you realize you've been around for a while, and um, you want to make sure that that new generation, that next generation, is coming up both on the artistic side and on the on the business side. Because there needs to be there needs to be people like me who are uh, you know willing to take the risks and do the hard heavy lifting to bring this music to the public, and there needs to be people on on your side of the table that are out there lobbying for the artists and, and booking the gigs and interfacing with the different uh, producers and presenters uh, uh, throughout the world. So I do see it more and more uh, as an e – I've always looked at it as an ecosystem and I've tried to um, – always try to take the long view and, uh, you know, not burn bridges uh, – uh, you know, you can't always – I mean, you know, in this business, uh, you know, you, you – I probably have to say no ten times for every one time I can say yes, um, just because there's so much interest and and so many artists out there. But there are ways to do those things. You don't have to make enemies around that, and you can do what you need to do respectfully and and uh, you know treat people correctly. I, I really think that's what it's about in the long run is is have the respect for the music and the artist. That's number one. Uh, have a respect for your audience and your community um and then the people that you're working with behind the scenes realize that um you know everybody's got a role to play and uh you know it's important for uh, all of us to work together as uh as colleagues yeah it's funny you should say that i probably get 10 no's for every yes i get <laughs> yeah just it, a, it is true um it's just the nature of the and, business and, like you said and and I'm, I'm sure you've heard uh, I've, I'm sure you've heard no in lots of different forms. Probably some of them respectfully, and probably some of them not so respectfully. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think one of the greatest pieces of, of advice I've received is is the idea that no doesn't mean no; it just means not now. So if I kind of yeah. live by that mindset, it really makes things a lot more understandable. And 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 in the end, I mean, it's it's really true. So yeah, it's. It's it's interesting that you pointed that out. Um, well, you know, Tim, it's been such an honor to be able to do this with you. I, I really can't thank you enough for your time here. I know that 
this is probably getting to enter the busiest time of the year for you with the festival just a few months away now. And um, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think that everything you've said is going to be of great benefit to anybody listening. And as a side note, um, not to get nostalgic or anything, but when the time comes, <laughs> rest assured that you you clearly will have left an impressive and huge legacy. Well, I appreciate that, Mike. I, I, I do. And Look forward to uh, you know continuing with both of these organizations and trying to take think take the next step and uh, stay consistent and uh, keep great music happening because uh, you know the artistry that's out there right now is at the highest level I've ever seen. It's definitely an exciting time for sure. Absolutely. Well, it was well, great to talk with you, and uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate the outreach. Absolutely, yeah. Take care. Okay. See you later. Bye. Bye.